Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes, and to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. By the end of the 16th century, turmoil and turbulence had engulfed the Western world, and the Roman Catholic Church was confronting threats of religious, cultural, and military nature. The shockwaves from Luther's protest continued to tear the Christian world apart. Exploration and exploitation of the New World was entering its second century, and a new school of objective observation, what we would come to know as science, began to tear at the very foundation of the Western world's understanding of itself. In the middle of the storm stood the Pope, and this period attracted to the papacy figures of enormous ambition, often matched only by a complete lack of moral character and piety. One such figure was Clement VIII. The death of Pope Gregory XIII in 1585 had thrown fuel onto the fire of the chaos engulfing Europe's Catholic faithful. Gregory, from whom we get the Gregorian calendar, left behind a tremendously successful papal legacy of stable leadership and steady reform. His 13-year papacy was succeeded by that of Pope Sixtus V, who, while a complicated and uneven figure, was considered a decent pope, but he died five years into his term, to be replaced by a series of disastrous and short-lived popes. His direct successor, Urban VII, was pope for 12 days. He was followed by Pope Gregory XIV, who lasted a much improved but still abbreviated 10 months. And he was followed by Innocent IX, who was pope for two months and one day. In 1592, the Florentine Ippolito Aldobrandini was elected to the papacy as Pope Clement VIII. And with his election came much optimism that his skill as a diplomat and a canon lawyer would finally stop the bleeding. That optimism proved to be well-placed. Clement indeed put out a number of fires, including bringing France back into the Catholic fold through Henry IV. But he also left a legacy of torture and death. He doubled down on anti-Jewish dictates and zealously burnt alive anyone he deemed an enemy of church unity, including the rebel theologian Minocchio, and perhaps most famously, a Dominican friar who embraced the Copernican view refuting geocentrism and supporting a model of an infinite universe with no center. His name was Giordano Bruno, and he would be just the first martyr in an ideological war between science and faith that would define the 17th century. And yet, none of this is why Pope Clement VIII remains a figure of cultural significance to this very day. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. ever returning guest, Mr. Teddy Smith. Hey, Teddy. Hello, hello. Good to be back. Now, you'll remember Teddy from our second episode about the Antichrist. Uh, Teddy, I like to drag you into the show whenever we deal with things that deal with Christianity or Catholicism. Uh, that's kind of your wheelhouse, and today's topic deals with that very thing. So you like yourself a good a good pope, right? Uh, big fan. Okay, so who would you say is your all-time favorite pope? Uh, I, I like, well, for the, for the writing, I like, I like old Benny, uh, also because he's, you know, he retired, which is good. That's nice. Pope should retire instead of just becoming, uh, bodies, shells who can't do anything or control what's going on. Poor John Paul II. 
but uh, yeah, I like him, and I like uh, I like Francis too. I know that's kind of the the common answer, but I, I I do like him. I think he's a he seems like a good fella. As a as a Catholic who tends to to lean, I guess more towards the left than your average Catholic, I would say. Not to get political here, but you know. <laughs> right. So so you're saying of the two thousand some odd years of popes. Uh, your two favorites are the two most recent ones. Is that is that accurate? <laughs> yeah. Or, oh, uh, okay. I can go back maybe 50 years. John the 23rd. I like him as well. The guy who started Vatican II. Yeah. Yeah, that's a solid choice. Uh, good old John 2-3. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of his as well. But I noticed that you don't put on your list uh, Clement VIII. That's weird. I've heard of him. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's okay. I mean, he was one of these Renaissance popes, and the Renaissance popes, there's a lot going on. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But uh, the reason that I asked you here today, Teddy, is because you have Clement VIII to thank for something that I know you you very much do love. So I know there's basically three things in the world that you love. Uh, I mean, aside from like your mom and your girlfriend and whatever else. But uh, I know that you love religion, yeah. and I know that you love cars. Uh, and the third thing, coffee, right? Uh, yeah. Well, okay, then as a coffee guy, uh, here's the story I want to tell you. Uh, you. You have Pope Clement VIII to thank for your love of coffee or the fact that you even know what coffee is or you can, you can drink it. Uh, here's the story. So traditionally, we date this story to the year 1600. Uh, I think that's probably kind of apocryphal. I don't, I don't know if that's an exact date. Uh, it's unclear as to exactly how much of the story is entirely true verbatim. Uh, we don't really know, but it's kind of a rough time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that Clement died in the year 1605. Um, so 1600 is just sort of the year that's been assigned to when this story took place. Anyway, what happened was a bunch of Catholic clergy were kind of petitioning the Pope uh, to condemn and ban coffee and, and keep it uh, something that Catholics were forbidden from drinking um, because they referred to it as the devil's drink. Uh, now, the reasoning for this uh, probably had to do with the fact that it was so heavily associated with the Muslims and they didn't want anything to be associated with the Muslims, and so they said to the Pope, like, this is what the Muslims drink, we can't have Catholics drinking this. And so the, the Pope Clement VIII says, sort of, okay, well, let me see for myself, and I'll, I'll try it out and see if it's really as bad as you say. And he calls on his uh, servant or whoever uh, to get him a cup of coffee, uh, and I, I would assume, like, several months go by or whatever, I don't know how long it took to get coffee, and 1600 in the Vatican or whatever. So anyway, um, famously, right, he's quoted as saying after he drank this coffee, uh, he says the following, uh, quote, why this Satan's drink is so delicious that it would be a pity to let the infidels have exclusive use of it. (laughs) We shall fool Satan by baptizing it and making it a true Christian beverage. Uh, That's that's a great trick, right? That's that's a really great turn of popery. So his response to to drive uh, to, to, to the drive to outlaw coffee is to basically say, like, we want the Muslims to have all the coffee. That, that would be terrible, right? I, we, we, we must take it and turn it into something good by putting our Pope magic on it, and then it will be a Christian beverage, and, you know, therefore <laughs> it's fine uh, that we do this. Imagine a modern Pope doing that with, like, premarital sex. Like, let me just try this out, and... We can't just let the sinners have this. Right, yeah, we, we can't let Muslims and atheists have all the fun, right? That's we got to keep people uh, people in the fold here, come on. Those damn atheists. Teddy, how long do you think 
if you were to guess, how long do you think Europeans have been drinking coffee? Uh, 700 years? I, I honestly, I have no idea. Yeah, so it's not even that long. Uh, so we know that cultures have been brewing drinks in general for hundreds of years, uh, <clears throat> adapting a plant and processing it a certain way and roasting it and then brewing something. Uh, that sort of thing goes back centuries and centuries and civilizations all over the world have been doing that. Uh, but coffee in the Western Hemisphere doesn't really seem to appear until about uh, 800 or so AD. Uh, so it's relatively recent. Um, and European coffee culture uh, actually only goes back um, around 1400. Um, so hmm. it's even more recent uh, than that. Uh, so I was looking into it. Uh, I found two sources really useful. Uh, one is called All About Coffee. Uh, that's the first book. And it's basically just a, it's a coffee table book about coffee, which is very hmm. kind of Seinfeldian uh, by a guy named William Euchre. A coffee book for your coffee table. Um, and the other is uh, a book called The Devil's Cup, A History of the World According to Coffee by a guy named Stuart Lee Allen. Uh, and that, that book is really sort of a, it's almost like a travel journal um, slash history of coffee. Um, it's very sort of uh, Anthony Bourdainian uh, in the way that it is written. So he goes around the world and kind of investigates the, the, the road that coffee took through Western civilization and trade and all that sort of thing um, as, as coffee developed uh, as a staple of modern life. Well, you know, it's interesting just kind of thinking about coffee's relative um, availability, depending upon the time, because I, I was so I've been watching Fringe. Uh, I don't know if I was watching Fringe last time I was on, but I since at least I have been watching Fringe. Great show, by the way. John Noble's an incredible actor. Uh, but I like how in the alternate universe, they actually, uh, coffee's a scarcity, which I, I think is kind of funny um, in the in the alternate world. And uh, yeah, it hasn't, when, so when did, when did we get it in the Americas? Yeah, that's There's... a great question. So we're going to trace it a little bit further back. All right. So we're going to go back to uh, Ethiopia, uh, where, where coffee really seems to have started. So before the Pope was ever, you know, was ever pressured to think of coffee as, evil um you know it, again it's hard to know anything about catholicism and not understand that that in 1600 when this is all happening when 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 the pope is being pressured so on there's, there's a lot going on right so you have the protestant reformation yeah and you have um you know the the end of several hundred years of very increasingly ill-advised wars with the muslims um and you have the counter-reformation and you, you have the emerging world of science and all this sort of stuff right so we're on the verge of the enlightenment and um if you're the pope you got a lot in your plate so you, you can kind of see that there's a lot at stake with every decision the pope has to make and so you don't even take a, a seemingly kind of silly issue like this and take it lightly uh and just say like uh, coffee who cares but ethiopia is really where it all seems to have begun as a uh, cultural recreational substance. Uh, so the Ethiopians were the ones who took the coffee bean and processed it the way that people brewed other things into uh, this 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 brand new drink. And it was Sufis, uh, Muslim Sufis, who were the first to bring it out of Ethiopia um, and and distribute it to the rest of the world. There's a bunch of different stories about how exactly this happened and who was involved and so on and so forth. But I'm, I'm going to read the account from Euchre's book, uh, all about coffee. And he says the following, um, about 1454 AD, Sheikh Gemaluddin Abu Muhammad ben Said, Mufti of Aden, a small town where he was born, became acquainted with the virtues of coffee on a journey into Abyssinia, which is now Ethiopia. 
Upon his return to Aden, his health became impaired, and remembering the coffee he had seen, his countrymen drinking in Abyssinia, he sent for some in the hope of finding relief. He not only recovered from his illness, but because of its sleep-dispelling qualities, he sanctioned the use of the drink among the dervishes, quote, that they might spend the night in prayers or other religious exercises with more attention and presence of mind. It is altogether probable that the coffee drink was known in Aden before the time of Sheikh Gemaluddin. But the endorsement of the very learned imam, whom science and religion had already made famous, was sufficient to start a vogue for the beverage that spread throughout Yemen, and then to the far corners of the world. We read in the Arabian manuscript at the Bibliothèque Nationale that lawyers, students, artisans, and others who worked at night to escape the heat of the day took to drinking coffee. So if you know anything about the dervishes, uh, it's a form of mystic Sufi practice uh, requires a lot of focus and a lot of dedication. There's famously the whirling dervishes, and they spin around a lot, and it requires an enormous amount of sort of mental exercise to pull it off. Um, so, you know, if they can stay up later and, and do more, it's great with them. It fits within Muslim law. Uh, it's not, you know, forbidden by, by any Muslim law. And so it just, it really caught on. It was really, really popular. And so actually, uh, the city of Mocha uh, is where the Starbucks drink Mocha comes from, right? So the, the chocolate latte thing uh, is named after Mocha, which was a major center of the early uh, Muslim coffee movement. So it expands to places like Cairo and Alexandria, and uh, you see a whole bunch of this sort of new facet of Muslim culture where uh, you have this drink that people can socialize around, that they are allowed to drink. It's not alcoholic. It's also not water. Uh, and it becomes sort of just a place that uh, it's a, a means of sort of congregation, uh, and it stays that way for a long time. Um, but like any other religion, um, Islam decided at some point that it was bad to drink coffee uh, because you can't you can't do anything that's popular. Uh, that's suspicious, right? Uh, so the Ottoman Empire went through a whole bunch of banning and unbannings of coffee uh, for the next couple hundred years. And uh, this opened the, the window for other religions to start coming in and taking coffee in as their own right, because when the Muslims no longer liked coffee anymore, that made it okay for other religions to like coffee. And, you know, that, that's this is how the, the logic of the way things work uh, in the world. I know you know a lot about Europe and, and the Middle Ages. Uh, you, and I, you and I both did, do, but do you know what Europeans mostly, mostly drank in the Middle Ages? Uh, alcoholic beverages, I would guess. Yeah, like shit tons of it, right? Wine. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Do you know why? Because yeah. water was absolutely disgusting. <laughs> yeah, right, and also lethal, right? Yeah, so the thing is, like, any, any way that you can filter out those toxins that are in water, um, because you have very poor ways of doing that at this point, um, is is better than drinking water itself. And, and the process of making things like beer and wine gets rid of a lot of those uh, potentially lethal components that you would find in water that just sort of came out of a bucket or whatever, right? So drinking alcohol was a necessity that you needed to be hydrated in some way. And, th and this became a real problem. Like, this is a genuinely one of the ways of looking at the Dark Ages is is because people were wasted all the time. And, and uh, you know, it sounds silly, but there is genuinely part of the story that can be attributable to the fact that people just had to right. be constantly drunk. Yeah, you have a, a, a community of just drunk stepdads. That's the whole world. Right. And, you know, a lot of the... Um, worst instincts of the, we associate with the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, 
you know, a lot of ways are really attributable to this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of historians go back and they talk about lead poisoning and mercury poisoning and all these other things that played a factor. And they did play a role in, in some of the worst atrocities of the Middle Ages. Uh, but, you know, keep in mind, like most people, you had to resort to wine and beer most of the time because... You couldn't drink water, and a big reason for that is that after the fall of the Roman Empire, without the aqueducts, there was just really no way of getting potable water, right? Yeah, not a lot of engineering brilliance going on. <laughs> exactly, and so, you know, again, it's it's primarily just just beer and wine and, and, and not much else. Uh, so this is really one of the things that kept the Dark Ages dark, and, you know, we can talk about whether or not the Dark Ages really were that dark. Um, there's a lot of revisionism about that, and that's that's fine. But, you know, what was keeping a lot of Europeans back was that they were pretty much wasted pretty much all of the time. Um, so, you know, it's not actually, it's not all that facile to say that the Age of Enlightenment is, um, in a lot of ways, connected to the introduction of coffee in Europe. And I'll get to that a little bit later, but I want to talk a, a little bit about what Alan's book, The Devil's Cup, has to say about this issue. So in chapter 10, he starts introducing us to um, the way that Europe kind of developed a coffee culture. Um, And and the place where that really seems to have originated is Vienna. Um, Over the, uh, between 15th and 17th century, uh, the Viennese and the Ottomans uh, had a number of battle walls, specifically the Holy Roman Empire and the Ottomans. Uh, And the Ottomans laid siege to Vienna in the middle of the 17th century uh, and lost pretty badly. Uh, But anyway, after that conflict, they left behind a bunch of coffee beans. Uh, And so I guess they didn't want to bring them back to to Turkey with them or whatever. So uh, the the Viennese kind of picked up the the, the coffee beans as sort of plunder of war and uh, started experimenting with them and, you know, thought like, oh, what do we, what do we do with this? And um, if if you know anything about Turkish coffee, it's really, really strong uh, and really bitter. um, And it's, you know, if you're unfamiliar with coffee, it's maybe not your best introduction to it. So they start experimenting with like milk and sugar and all sorts of things. And, uh, and, and that's how, you know, the Viennese style of coffee is, is produced. Uh, There's another legend that the, uh, a guy named Marco Daviano, who's a Capuchin monk, uh, who was a sort of a big player in in the in the siege of Vienna uh, in the 17th century? Uh, that he the cappuccino gets named for him uh, because of the color of his robes, um, and so his, that sort of uh, light brown color of the capuchin robes is where we get the word cappuccino. So this is really the beginning of coffee culture in Europe. And again, it goes back further than this. Uh, we talked about Pope Clement, and that's in 1600. This is before that or rather this is after that, um, and, and but this is where we start to see a, a real unique European uh, place for coffee. Yeah, and it still has this like stigma of uh, being sort of anti-Catholic and associated with the devil and all that sort of thing. But It's one of those things that as a Catholic, it, there's so many things that are called the devil's <laughs> <Right>. insert thing <laughs> there. It, it becomes sort of part and parcel with with studying Catholic history. You're just like, oh, everything's the devil. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I guess I just have to sit in my house and pray. That's ah, it. That's the safest course of action, Teddy. Um, I'm going to read from Alan's book now where he talks about uh, how coffee sort of uh, latched on to European culture. So in chapter 10, uh, Alan says the following. To appreciate the significance of this new recreational drug, however, you first have to appreciate what redneck backwater Europe was 400 years ago. 
There were no books, fewer movies, the music was awful, and the food... Pepper was unknown, salt rare, and sugar had just made a debut. Basically, it was a lot like Nebraska on a slow weekend. Church or beer. Europeans, however, had the sense to combine the two. Paris in 1660 had over 100 religious holidays, and every one of them culminated in the marathon drinking competition so popular then. They must swallow half, then all of a drink in one gulp without stopping to take a single breath, wrote one German in 1599, until they sink into a complete stupor. Then the two heroes emerge and guzzle in competition with one another. Drinking raised your social status, hence the phrase, drunk as a lord. Toasting was a way of displaying your wealth. He who drank the most was also rewarded with the piece of toasted bread floated in the glass, hence the name. The writer Fortunatus considered these toasting competitions tantamount to suicide, with participants carrying on like madmen each competing in drinking to the other's health, so that a man had to consider himself lucky to come away with his life. At night, Europe's cities were full of drunkards, weaving from side to side, stumbling and staggering, falling into their mud, their legs splayed out wide enough for a coach to pass through. Beer was not only the main means of celebrating, it was second only to bread as a source of nourishment. Every housewife baked bread, every housewife brewed beer, People subsist more on this drink than they do on food, wrote Placotomus in 1551. Beer thickened with eggs and poured over bread was the original continental breakfast and remained popular in Germany until the mid-1700s. Since hot beverages were rare and water unsafe, workers took mid-morning beer breaks. Beer for breakfast, ale for lunch, stout with dinner, and a few mugs in between. The average Northern European, including women and children, drank three liters of beer a day. That's almost two six-packs. But often the beer had a much higher alcoholic content. People in positions of power, like police, drank much more. Finnish soldiers were given a ration of five liters of strong ale a day. Monks in Sussex made do with 12 cans worth. That is a shit ton of beer. Yeah, it it is. <laughs> was was everybody also fat, or was I mean? I guess they weren't eating a lot of food, so that's just kind of that's amazing. Just to consider, like, I mean, there are days when you know I'll have five or six beers, and I'll go, "Oh my god, I I can't drink again for another two weeks," you know. And these people are are having, you know, <laughs> the children are having ten beers a day. That's Oh, I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah, nothing says nutrients like pouring beer on toast. Right, and you have to remember, like, people just worked in the fields all day, right? Yeah. Like, like at that time. So there's that element to it as well, True. right? But yeah, but no, it's not It's not a balanced diet. And again, it's it's like this or no. dying, right? That's the only, your only two <laughs> options. You got to hydrate yourself self somehow. Uh, and there's just no other way of doing it because, like, you, you drink a glass of water, you'll die. And, you know, and I think... Yeah, we we sort of we get used to taking that sort of thing for granted, especially in Western culture that, you know, water drinking water is just readily available in so many places. Um, you know, you and I have had enough experience with people from from overseas, from other countries. They're just terrified of, of having water from a tap because they think it's going to kill them. Right. And so it's not even all that common today that we have total access to clean drinking water. Right. And, and my this kind of shows my privilege, but I, I don't even like that. You know, I complain about the tap water in my apartment because I'm like, oh, it doesn't taste very good. Well, it doesn't kill me either. Right, so right. there are there are pros and cons. Right. But yeah, the, that's right. That's why we got the um, those water bubbler things, because the <laughs> the kids from other countries wouldn't eat 
or not eat. They wouldn't drink the water, which, I mean, I suppose I don't blame them. Well, yeah, and it's, it's a purely, it's like a psychological barrier too, right? They, they say they just don't trust the water that comes out of the tap is going to be safe. And, and that's just the reality in like most of yeah. the world. So, um, so getting back to Pope Clement for a second, I, you know, this is one of those things like you got to think about what he was dealing with, um, that, that yeah. he's got the cultural issues that he's trying to con- contend with. But there's also like suddenly there's this miracle drink that you can drink and not die and, uh, you know, also, you're not going to get drunk, and that's pretty appealing. And so he's got to sort of navigate the, you know, anti-Muslim cultural bias uh, with the fact that there's this new opportunity for something that could potentially save lives and also make everybody less drunk all the time. And uh, that's certainly got its upside yeah, tell the devil to get his hands off because i'm tired of everybody around me being drunk right so so the other two factors here uh as it concern, concerns sort of western religion uh is the way that the introduction of coffee played for the other two major uh religious groups um at the time the protestants and and the jews um so among the europeans right you have the protestant reformation and you've got a fairly sizable Jewish population in, in Europe. And as it turns out, right, uh, both of those groups really glommed onto this thing really, really quickly. So this is all happening around the same time as Martin Luther. And so Martin Luther finds out that there's this thing that you can drink that's not going to kill you and also is an alcohol. And his response is like, hell yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. let's, let's, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's make as much of this stuff as, as possible. Um, so, you know, puritanical culture is sort of also uh, an offspring of, of, um, Lutheranism, and so Puritans are afraid of anything fun, and, um, you know, they look at the debauchery of Christendom, and, and they're just like, oh, gee, like, so uh, the classic example of the um, the way that alcohol yeah. uh, was sort of becoming something that the Protestants hated was Christmas, which they despised, right? They wanted to get rid of Christmas as, as soon as possible. Um, and Christmas was really, really popular for drinking. Um, it was known as sort of a debaucherous alcohol-based holiday, right? People, it's really cold outside. People like to um, get wasted, so they're not thinking about how cold it is. And so Christmas is a, is a very drunken time. Uh, so the Puritans really hated that. They hated that whole culture. And so uh, coffee was like a big sort of aha moment um, for, uh, for the Protestants. So I'm going to read again now from uh, The Devil's Cup. Uh, he says, So it's no surprise that booze was one of Martin Luther's first targets when he set out about reforming the Catholic Church in the mid-1500s. Followers like the Capuchins printed posters of a drunken demon with a pig's head and bird's claws, the original demon alcohol, and banned drinking contests. The only reaction was the formation of Europe's first temperance league, a group of Germans whose members limited themselves to a mere seven glasses of wine per meal. I just, I just like the, the, the classification, the a meal. Not like a day, a, a meal. Every time you eat. Seven glasses of wine, that's that's fine. But we're going to cut it off there because we're not going to go crazy now. Right. You I know? mean, yeah, you got to separate yourself from the drunkards, right? Yeah. You, <laughs> you're just trying to you're just trying to survive and hydrate yourself enough. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, Europe staggered along as it always had. Doctors continued to advise patients to drink themselves unconscious at least once a month as it stimulates general well-being, which is oh, pretty good yeah. advice, medical advice in the 17th century. <laughs> Uh, when you consider the state of medicine in the 17th century. 
Yeah. Drink yourself into a stupor and throw on some leeches and cut yourself open and uh, see how you feel in the morning, right? Hey, man, leeches and blackouts. That's how we solve our problems. That's that. We should still be doing that. Uh, one third of England's farmland was dedicated to growing barley for beer. One in seven buildings was a tavern. Wow. Luther's attempts to limit drinking failed because he had offered no alternative. Then came the great Ottoman coffee suppression of the 1640s, and within 10 years, Europe's first coffee house opened in Oxford, England. Cafes soon appeared in London, where, coincidentally, the Puritans had just seized control of Parliament. So there you go, right? And so, again, a window kind of opens up for uh, the Christians to now take in coffee because the Muslims have basically decided, like, oh, we don't like it anymore. Uh, we're going to suppress coffee and you can't drink it anymore. So that's right in the middle of the 17th century uh, when that takes place. Hmm. Um, I suppose a lot of people in the Italian Renaissance are probably not that into this idea because they don't really need an excuse to stop drinking wine. But it comes down to it's basically like if the Muslims think it's bad, then you know, we, we like it. And if they like it, then it must be bad. Right. Uh, cause we have to differentiate ourselves from Muslims in just every possible way. And so do you think that, do you think that the Muslims liking coffee initially was the sole reason for Christians saying it's the devil's cup? Or do you think that there were some other, uh, other factors to them coming to that conclusion that it was somehow ungodly? Yeah, I mean, there's certain there's a certain amount of that, right? Uh, that kind of xen- xenophobia going on there. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 there's there's this fear of like becoming peaceful with the Muslims. There's like almost something advantageous about having that that rivalry going on, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, certainly, obviously, there was there was a lot of politics underlying it, but it just goes to show you that that cup of coffee they gave to Clement VIII must have been uh, a damn good cup of coffee for him to be like, oh, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to keep this, right? This is, this is good. So anyway, um, along come the Jews into the story. Let's, let's talk about the Jews now. Uh, now, you know enough about Judaism. Um, so, so, why, so why do you think, uh, take a guess, as to why coffee became really popular with the Jews all of a sudden? Uh, I don't know. Does it have something to do with kosher laws? Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So there's nothing in the Bible that says anything about not drinking ah, yes. coffee, right? That is true. So yeah, so oh, it's a it's nice. a, good for the Jews. Yeah. So it's a loophole, right? A nice loophole. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, so kosher law, like you can drink alcoholic beverages, but it's got to be very particularly prepared. Uh, that's how kind of kosher laws work. Mm. So the real obstacle is, you know, basic Jewish hydration. Um, then along comes this new thing. Yeah. Right, and it's not at all forbidden by kosher, you know, um, unless you want to put like bacon into your coffee or something, which I don't know, maybe some people want to do that. <laughs> See, anyway, so coffee becomes really popular with the Jewish population in Europe. Um, the very first coffee house in Europe opens in Livorno, Italy, in uh, 1632. Uh, was opened by a Jew, uh, and in fact, the very first coffee house in Oxford in England a few years later was also opened by a Jew. Um, so, you know, this was uh, a moment where Muslims and Christians and Jews all agreed on one thing, but kind of at different times, uh, and also didn't want necessarily to agree with each other. And so coffee was the great unifier in this. And in this battle between these three sides, it seems like it was Jewish merchants who really brought the coffee culture and the idea of the coffee house uh, to Europe. So, I mean, that would make sense to me. I mean, it's, it's especially with some, I, I have a friend who's, uh, not a real practicing Jew, but has, you know, their family and, and things. So I guess 
what would you call them? They wouldn't be, um, I guess they would be kind of like a reform. She would be a reform Jew, I guess, more so. The, her older relatives, I think, are Orthodox. But um, yeah, one of, I mean, she said the, the absolute hardest thing, even today, is, is just eating kosher. And sometimes she just can't. And um, it's so to have, a, to have a loophole come your way. You're like, oh, because there's more, uh, I guess there's more motivation there instead of just like, ah, oh, we don't want to be drunk anymore. Yeah, or maybe they do, but um, yeah, getting getting something else in there is probably pretty appealing, especially for a small population. It, it's You said the first two taverns opened were Jewish? Yeah, well, uh, the first known Italian coffee shop was uh, opened by a, a Jewish owner. Um, and then the first one that opened in Oxford, England. I'm not sure if it was the first in England altogether. Um, but, you know, not surprisingly, in a college town, and we'll talk more, more about that a little bit later. Um, but, you know, it's a, this intellectual hub, and, and the coffee culture really sort of fit into that intellectual discourse thing, right? Um, and, of course, Oxford is sort of the college town of college towns. So yeah, anyway, so we get to the end of the 1600s. Um, the Pope has given coffee his, his okay. Uh, Catholics are drinking it quite a bit, and it becomes very, very popular in Italy, as we obviously know. The cappuccino, which I always thought was an Italian thing, but it turns out it's Viennese, uh, and it got its name from this, from this monk. Uh, cappuccino is a big staple among the sort of coffee culture uh, in Europe. And, and then we have this uh, kind of this emerging feud uh, between the Puritans and Protestants and Catholics. So I'm going to read again from uh, The Devil's Cup. The teetotaling Puritan jumped on this, quote, black wine as a God-given alternative to beer. Better than an alternative because it was thought to cure drunkenness. Sylvester Dufour's pamphlet Traté Nouveau et Curio du Café du Thé et du Chocolat reported that coffee, quote, sobers you up instantaneously, or in any event, it sobers up those who are not fully intoxicated. Nonsense, of course, although recent tests indicate that the equivalent of two cups of coffee actually reverses some of alcohol's milder effects in a person with up to a 0.04% blood alcohol level. This kind of mild alcoholic fog, however, was what was most plagued Europe at the time. The dizziness in the brain that struck clerks after their mid-morning beer break, according to private correspondence from the time. The growth of coffee houses not only sobered up the clerks, but slowly ended the mid-morning pint altogether, according to historian James Howell. In 1652, there was exactly one coffee house in London. By 1700, there were over 2,000. Yeah. So, you know, what happened with Starbucks in the 90s also happened with um, coffee houses in London in the 1650s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s there, right? <laughs> the equivalent of the American 90s. So this happens really, really fast. And, and of course, we get to 1700. And so, you know, this is sort of the period that we think of as, as the Enlightenment and the beginning of kind of uh, revolutionary democratic fervor and that sort of thing. Um, it's all coinciding with the rise of coffee as a drinkable thing that's not going to kill you. And I don't think that's a coincidence, right? I, I don't. I, I think there's a really good reason to think that having places that people can go and socialize and not get wasted, like, really did change the world in a, yeah. in a really meaningful way. Well, I like how candidly it, it, it says, you know, like that, that, that was what did away with the, the mid-morning pint, you know, just that's a normal thing that people do. I, I, I do think it's um, it's almost certainly based on what you've said. It, it's almost certainly 
something that led to just an explosion of productivity for a culture that had been suppressed because they'd been drunk for like five years. So it's, I, I can imagine that if you look at sort of the, you know, you track together uh, the increase of coffee and the, the number of coffee houses given a certain mileage or something, you probably could pair that right up with, um, you know, sort of leading into the industrial revolution. And- Absol- absolutely. Yeah. Um, so getting back to the devil's cup, uh, he says, carrying on, um, aside from sobering up the workplace, coffee houses gave Brits an alternative to taverns in which to meet and talk. Taverns were not the safest place to discuss politics or religion. Everybody was armed or drunk, usually both, and proprietors sensibly discouraged heated discussions. Coffee houses, on the other hand, encouraged political debate, which was precisely why King Charles II banned them in 1675. He withdrew the ban in 11 days. So, I don't know how much you know about King Charles II, um, but he was the king who, so after Cromwell kind of took over England and ran it as an authoritarian state, Charles II was put back on the throne. His father, Charles I, was beheaded and deposed, and uh, England tried its hand at non-monarchical governance for a while. And uh, one of the things that is really credited with bringing the monarchy back was that Brits missed Christmas, <laughs> uh, and, and you couldn't celebrate Christmas under Cromwell because it was considered to be uh, pagan and superstitious and thus illegal. Um, so, so it's often credited with restoring the, the monarchy. But Charles II was obviously very concerned about uh, pissing people off, knowing sort of what happens, uh, that he was walking kind of a really tight rope in his restoration to, uh, to, to, to the monarchy. So uh, it's not that much of a surprise that he would then be like, oh, no, I'm going to outlaw this thing. And then um, people sort of said, like, ah, don't do that. And he goes, oh, no, just kidding, right? And uh, it changes his mind immediately. And you can kind of see why a guy like Charles II might not want a whole bunch of intellectuals who aren't drunk, right, getting together and sharing ideas that, you know, may very well be contrary to monarchical rule. A lot has been made of, you know, for instance, like someone like Lenin. Um, there's, there's a sort of <clears throat> stereotype or myth in the way of sort of talking about how he introduced communism to Russia, that he basically spent a bunch of years bumming around Europe and like hanging out with people at coffee shops and getting all these ideas that he just wasn't getting in Russia. And it just changed history forever. And, you know, it's basically true, right? Yeah. It, I, I do think it's funny that, uh, it, there's sort of um, a, a parallel to the, the free nature of certain social media platforms where you're like, ah, oh, people are talking about things and maybe we don't want them to talk about this or that, you know, um, let's try to stop that. That's never, that's never a good thing for, uh, for autonomy um, and for, for individual rights and expression. And, and so it's, it's interesting that the coffee house would have been, you know, sort of the equivalent to say uh, a Twitter. I mean, that's that's a, obviously a rough comparison, and, but I do think that that's a kind of a fascinating uh, relation there. Absolutely. So it's not actually that far off from the truth of Lenin's time. Like Europe was heavily populated by 
people drinking coffee all the time and having all these intellectual discussions and exposing each other to each other's different ideas and you know Marxism was certainly among them um, so you know I, I think this is very clearly associated with the communist revolution so I'm going to read one more paragraph from the devil's cup um, <clears throat> coffee's ability to quote swell our wealth was manifested most noticeably in Britain where coffee houses became headquarters for some of the world's most powerful businesses including Lloyd's of London and the London Shipping Exchange, and the East India Company, which we'll get back to that in a second. The physical design of British coffee houses also set the pace for the modern office. Tables set aside for certain groups of merchants turned into curtained stalls for greater privacy. These became offices or cubicles, which to this day remain gathered about a common pot. Until recently, the messengers of the British Stock Exchange were called waiters, a holdover from the not-too-distant days when the exchange was an actual coffee house with waiters. So this is sort of the genesis of the modern corporate office. And of course, coffee culture is kind of a part of corporate culture, you know, hasn't gone away, and it's yeah. far more closely connected than we tend to think. So America's fascination with coffee, this is actually really interesting. So, so one of the things that's also happening around the same time in England is, of course, the, the rise of the British Empire, or the rise of colonialism over these couple hundred years, and the trade relationship with Britain and India. That's kind of a product of that. And so this is the source of the rise of the popularity of tea, tea in England as well. So tea and coffee are both kind of competing at the same time. Now, these days, we tend to associate England with tea and America with coffee. <laughs> Right, like those are the two kind of the staple drinks for each of those cultures. And speaking of the East India Company, which I mentioned before, which again had its headquarters in a coffee house, uh, the reason for this really does seem to boil down to the Boston Tea Party. Yeah. So in England, for a couple hundred years from the 1600s on, tea and coffee were relatively kind of as popular as each other until Britain really started exploiting India for all that it was worth. And so they're importing tons of tea into England and just sort of saturating the market so that it became much more of a staple than coffee was. And on the other side of things, you have the Boston Tea Party. And so when the Sons of Liberty threw a whole bunch of tea into the harbor as a protest against corporate favorability of the crown, um, and in this case specifically against the East India Company, uh, this is the moment where tea becomes antithetical to, yeah. to Americanism, right? Being an American. Uh, it was considered to be Tory, uh, loyalist, uh, English. So it was something that, you know, you were aligning yourself with the monarchy if you were a tea drinker, right? So, you know, when the Puritans came to America, they didn't really bring coffee along with them. Like, that's not really the gen genesis of America's coffee culture. Uh, when they came here, they really didn't have the means of making coffee. It's actually a lot more complicated, really, uh, to make coffee than to, than to make beer. Uh, so, so the Mayflower pilgrims went back to drinking alcohol mostly because they didn't have a whole bunch of rabble-rousers around them. They weren't that worried about falling into sin and you know, people getting into rowdy, drunken fights, right? They were much more temperate. Um, so their association with coffee was not that intense, and America didn't have a sort of coffee culture uh, when the Boston Tea Party happened. It just became anathema to the American ideal to drink, uh, to drink tea, so they started drinking coffee. So Americans, of course, really drink really, really shitty coffee for hundreds of years until really until the 1990s, until Starbucks came along and sort of reintroduced to a mass audience the idea of Italian coffee and the Italian process of making coffee and dark roast and that sort of thing um, to the United States again, because, you know, it was not considered something that American. It wasn't a delicacy. It was just sort of there, right? It was just a thing that Americans drank. It was a staple. 
And so we often kind of drank it out of habit. So Americans' relationship with coffee and tea, and a lot of, I think, the, the corporate sort of capitalist culture of it, um, the working culture, it does come from the English coffee houses. But the reason why we don't drink tea um, does boil down basically to history and politics. Yeah, I didn't know that the, the 90s was sort of the, the renaissance of, you know, decent coffee. But thinking about it now, I, my, my grandmother was born in 1939. She hates strong coffee. And I would imagine that that has something to do with the fact that that's all the coffee she ever had was kind of, you know, weak shit. And, um, and the stuff that, you know, we're used to now, I think even, even like a Dunkin' Donuts now, their coffee is a lot stronger, at least, um, at least according to some of my older relatives than what they remember. It's almost like everyone has kind of returned to that, um, to that type since the 90s, being a, a 90, early 90s baby myself. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, certainly, yes, like Dunkin' Donuts coffee has gotten a lot better. Uh, McDonald's coffee. Shockingly good. Yeah, it is. It's <laughs> night and day from where it used I to actually, be. I actually like McDonald's because uh, I drink black coffee. So I actually prefer McDonald's roast to uh, to Dunkin' a lot of the time. And the thing is, like, it's so interesting that for so long there was this very sort of similar kind of uh, European mindset. Like, we, we drink coffee because we do, right? I guess that's just what we do as Americans. But, like, it doesn't matter that it completely sucks. <laughs> like, for years. Yeah, and the same is also true of beer, right? Like, Americans just for a long time would be like, I'm going to drink this cheap shit and I'm not going to think about it. And then, like, you think about how microbrews started appearing around the same time. Yeah. Right? And people are like, oh, there's better types of beer than this? <laughs> like, and I actually don't have to hate this thing that I'm drinking? Yeah, it's really weird because there, there really basically was, you know, people in medieval Europe would drink beer to not die. And it was, like, not a matter of, like, well, I, I prefer IPA, right? <laughs> so it's, it's so weird that it takes kind of a moment where you're like, oh, maybe I can enjoy this thing that I drink all the time anyway. You know, like, what a strange concept. Yeah. But I think it's true of English tea, too. I mean, like, a lot of it's really shitty, and some of it's good, and people start to sort of appreciate the good stuff over time. Uh, but in general, like, most of us just, you know, kind of fall back on Coors Light, right? Yeah, <laughs> it, it and that, I think, uh, is similar to what you're saying, you know, about Americans drink coffee just because, you know, I mean, you can think of a thousand songs where it's just like, oh, we had a cup of, you know, a cup of Joe, whatever. Um, same with the English and tea, but beer is it is similar in that I, I think a lot of people just they say they like Bud Light because that's like oh I, I'm a simple man and I just have regular old beer, um, and uh, and it's not really about the um, plethora of options that we have. I mean, for me, I would obviously I'd prefer to have something that I think genuinely tastes good, but I think for some there is still that kind of well you know. I drink beer because that's what I drink. Um, especially people from, I think, my parents' generation. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of boomers, I think, are that way. They're like, ah, oh, that fancy ass IPA yeah. stuff. Yeah, whatever it's, it is, I need to just, just to you know hide my pain and like it. Just right? drink a yeah. just drink a real regular beer. So yeah, we can't end this without talking about uh, the interesting relationship between coffee and Mormonism. The only, the only true American religion, uh, aside from the, the true faith yeah. Scientology. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read from a blog called I Need Coffee uh, by a guy named Michael Smith. And just coincidentally, uh, we were just talking about Seattle in the 1990s. Uh, this website started in 1999. 
uh, out of Seattle, Washington. So this is from a post called uh, Why Mormons Don't Drink Coffee from 2011. Uh, so, so Mormons, just to give some backstory, have beyond the Book of Mormon, they have a bunch of other sort of splinter liturgical slash religious texts that they use, which is, you know, not uncommon for most religions and denominations in general. Uh, like the, you know, the Anglicans have the Book of Common Prayer, and like the Muslims have like the Hadiths. So this is, you know, it's pretty, it's not an uncommon thing uh, to have supplementary uh, scripture to your, to your, to your faith. Uh, there's a book that's commonly known among Mormons as the Word of Wisdom. Um, the Word of Wisdom is kind of a compendium to the Book of Mormon. Um, according to I Need Coffee, uh, Mormons believe that, and I quote, the Holy Spirit continues to communicate with humans, thus the prophet Joseph Smith received a spontaneous manifestation of God's insight for living correctly on February 27th, 1833. So a lot of people were like, hey, you know, what about this? What about that? Uh, after the Book of Mormon was written, it doesn't actually cover absolutely every element of life. Um, it's very similar to the way that Paul's epistles were written in the New Testament, right? So like someone from a church that he starts, um, it gets into an argument about a certain regulation or rule for Christians. And he's like, hey, can you, you forgot to tell us about marriage, right? So, hey, Paul, am I, am I still married, right? So they write this letter and you, you can actually ask questions. And then Paul's like, okay, marriage. And then let me write a 25 page answer to your question. So, you know, it's kind of following in those, in those footsteps. And so Smith writes, or rather God gives the revelation of what is called the word of wisdom. Um, it's formal title is the, the doctrines and covenant of the church. Uh, but it's known kind of colloquially as the word of wisdom. Um, so the idea that Mormons shouldn't drink coffee or don't drink coffee doesn't actually come from the Book of Mormon. It comes from this. Um, so again, I'm going to quote from I Need Coffee. <clears throat> quote, the insight was written down and incorporated into the doctrines and covenants of the church. Specifically, these insights are referred to as the word of wisdom. It may be an apocryphal story, but it said that Joseph Smith was moved to ask for God's insight on the matter of tobacco. And the revelation that resulted included guidance related to the use of tobacco, quote, warm drinks, quote, strong drinks, wine, meat, herbs, and grains. So starting from verse 5, the word of wisdom says that inasmuch as any man drinketh wine or strong drink among you, but behold, it is not good, neither meet in the sight of your father, only in assembling yourselves together to offer up your sacraments before him. And behold, this should be wine, yea, pure wine of the grape of the vine of your own make. And again, strong drinks are not for the belly, but for the washing of your bodies. And again, tobacco is not for the body, neither for the belly, and it is not good for man, but is an herb for bruises and all sick cattle <laughs> to be used with judgment and skill. And again, hot drinks are not for the body or belly. And so that is why Mormons, at least most Mormons, don't drink coffee. <laughs> what about iced coffee? So, so yeah, actually, it's interesting. There's a lot written about that. Like, if you look it up and do some research on, like, Mormon dialogues about iced coffee and whether or not iced coffee fits into this, there's, like, some very serious theological debate as to whether or not iced coffee counts. Uh, for a, a lot of Mormons, it's like, no, it's it's not hot. So I'm just going to go ahead and... Yeah, I read the rule. It ain't hot. <laughs> I love how, like, one of my favorite things about this is that, like, while while saying you shouldn't smoke or chew tobacco, it's it's still great for sick cattle and bruises, <laughs> like... 
Yeah. It's like Joseph Smith just can't resist his urge to be a snake oil salesman <laughs> in the middle of his diatribe about how God hates coffee. Right? Uh, like, by the way, got a nasty bruise? Try some of wise old Joe's tobacco salad. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Let me let me grab my my cow a, a cigar uh, real quick. So, uh, lastly, I just want to read one last passage from uh, "I Need Coffee" um, on this Mormon issue. It says, quote, the current debate over coffee, tea, caffeine, and other, quote, hot drinks boils down to a difference in interpretation about whether this particular portion of the Doctrines and Covenants is an outright prohibition or merely counsel. During the temperance movement years, the Mormons referred to the word of wisdom to eschew alcohol consumption and become associated with strict prohibition reform. Around 1921, the Mormon church switched from the use of wine in religious ceremonies to water. Today, it seems that full participation in the church is granted to those who are restricted adherents to the words of wisdom. But there's still room for debate in the specifics of what it means to strictly adhere to the tenets of the words of wisdom. Even today, there's a lot of discussion about whether it's just coffee or tea, whether cola is okay, whether decaf coffee and tea are okay, and etc. Essentially, the church leaders recommend the rejection of any drink that might be habit-forming. With reference to a cola drinks, the church has never officially taken a position on this matter, but the leaders of the church have advised, and we do now specifically advise, against the use of any drink containing harmful habit-forming drugs under circumstances that might result in acquiring the habit. Any beverage that contains ingredients harmful to the body should be avoided. Now, coffee is seen as part of the slippery slope that leads away from God. <laughs> coffee, booze, marijuana, cocaine, all a defilement of the temple that God gave us. Ah, yeah, I've never heard coffee and cocaine in the same list before. Well, remember that the earliest soda beverages were concocted by pharmacists as like miracle cures for, you know, whatever, jaundice or polio or whatever it was, right? Like take five ounces of Coca-Cola. Yeah, brand, cocaine. Right. <laughs> miracle, the miracle elixir. Right. And, yeah. Um, so there's some logic to it. There's like these sort of caffeinated remedies and, you know, they're basically drugs. So (laughs) (laughs) it's not like less logical and like the moderate suburban parents being like, marijuana is a great gateway drug and you're going to be a heroin and a crack addict if you do it once and then you'll just die immediately, right? So like it's basically the same logic. So there's something kind of like endearingly pure about it, right? Like the Mormon church just basically saying like, look, just anything that's habit forming, just avoid it. Just, you know, don't do it, right? Like if you don't have to drink coffee, <laughs> yeah. don't don't drink coffee. Um, because as we both know, it does tend to be a habit forming substance. So <clears throat> anyway, I'm not exactly sure like what Joseph Smith's beef with the coffee yeah. industry was or like why he included hot drinks, but that's... Yeah. It's kind of a hard one to figure out. But, yeah. Um, what about warm milk? Well, right. I, I, I would imagine that that's like, like when you think about mold wine, or like hot toddies or that sort of thing, it's pretty common. Like if you had a child, you just like knock them out with whiskey, you know, whatever, when they're feeling sick. So that's pretty common yeah. back then, right? So I can see that. I can see that like hot drinks are kind of being thrown into that. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's one of those things that's so ambiguous and like very similar to the way that Jews and Christians have been arguing over the meaning of Old Testament words for a long time, right? It's like arguing about whether or not you can drink iced coffee as a Mormon and still be be good with God is just you know, part of that grand Well, tradition. yeah, because it's one of those things where we, when you read it now, you have, I mean, t- to a certain degree, you have no idea what the author intended with those words. Like, what was he thinking when he wrote that? Did he mean specifically just coffee and some of those alcoholic beverages? Or did he mean 
you know, was he looking to the future and realize, you know, when people realized, oh, we could put ice cubes in this drink and make it cold. Yeah, because, you know, I've, I've said before to you, I, I, I talk to my, my students about, you know, being able to understand the historical context of, of a particular uh, religious text, because otherwise you, you can't even get close. You can't even get close to what it, what it was uh, intended to, to say to its readers at the time. Um, I feel like this, this is, I mean, obviously this is one of those instances where it's like, what the hell did he really mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a matter of course that, right. That anything that human beings find enjoyable, uh, religious organizations are going to find a way to have an opinion about it and make it make some kind of rule around it. But anyway, that's, that's why after church you get coffee and bad donuts. And that's the story of, uh, of coffee and Western religion. That does truly bizarre i mean it and and you know i'm not uh that is kind of hard to believe (laughs) not to you know roll credits but um it's just one of those things where you um i i had no idea that that coffee was so uh intertwined (laughs) with history that's that's very bizarre um and I, i i do still i think i will always find it hilarious that there is there are people out there maybe Mitt Romney's argued about this I don't know um who are like oh you can't have hot drinks well what if we uh, put it in the fridge for a couple hours and see how it goes yeah hot toddy cold well you know it's interesting that you bring up Mitt Romney because Mitt Romney famously is sort of the has this long-standing feud with uh with John Huntsman right so the two of them were both you know very visible Mormon politicians from from the same neck of the woods, uh, but they always had a pretty like nasty rivalry between one Mormons. another. And, and Romney is one of those who takes the words of wisdom very seriously. Yeah. Doesn't drink coffee. It doesn't drink any alcohol. Um, Huntsman, you know, also identifies as Mormon. Huh. Uh, he'll have the, the odd drink here and there when the occasion calls for it, and that's you know it's like he's no problem with that. And, and again, it's one of those things where it's like this isn't like a Ten Commandments issue, right? It's not something where Joseph Smith was like, God demands you do these things, and, you know, if, if, if you don't, then there's a, you're going to fall into sin and vice, and it's all going to go downhill, and, you know, you're not going to go to Mormon hell if you ever, like, drink a glass of wine. So, yeah, it's just one of those really kind of fascinating things, and the two of them, uh, the sort of distinction between their interpretation of their religion is one of the places where this sort of weird kind of cold war between each other kind of plays out. But yeah, like a lot of Mormons drink a little bit of wine here and there or drink coffee in the same way that a lot of Muslims, you know, drink alcohol. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of that though. There's a lot of that. I think in, especially in the West where religious folks, uh, myself included, um, we're like, Oh, you know, very devout, but not with that. You know, that's kind of what we do. Uh, it's, well, we always joke, you know, it's like cafeteria Catholics. You're like, oh, I'll take some of this. Jesus is a real nice guy, but uh, sex, alcohol, and pot. And that's, you know, it's, it's it is very human. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and, you know, it's also kind of n- nice to know when I was researching this, the idea of like the, the diner philosophy, <laughs> philosopher, you know, like the, the, the philosophy major in college is going to diners at three in the morning. Uh, you know, drinking the, the shittiest coffee. Yeah, that's me. Right. <laughs> that was, there's a real historical yeah. grounding to that, that right? Cool. And that, you know, the, the 
cup, the coffee houses were not just convenient locales, but they were places where people could go and get together and also like not lose their minds within 10 minutes of like, you know, their fourth yeah. pint. <laughs> um, so there's a sort of enchanting fact that it's not, it's, you know, this sort of weird offshoot of our culture. Uh, th there's real cultural roots to that phenomenon of it's like hanging out at the diner till four in the morning with your college roommate is like, you know, discussing the finer points of the world actually is something that we've, we've seen before. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, my favorite thing about the Star Wars prequels is the revelation that, or the Im implied revelation that Obi-Wan like hangs out in a diner all the time and, and knows the owner. And like, of course, of course he would, right? <laughs> because like, that's the sort of person Obi-Wan is, you know, like this philosophically minded dude and, you know, when he's not training younglings or whatever, he's doing his sweeping of the temple. Yeah. He's like, um, you know, he goes over to like this Dex's diner and has like two drinks and, you know, just drinks coffee all night and shoots the shit. And, you know, that's that's perfect, right? Because it's <laughs> like, you can relate to that. And it seems completely reasonable for that kind of character to have, have that, you know, have be, be like a, di a diner demon. Like one of those guys just orders coffee and nothing else and stays for six hours. So yeah. you know we wouldn't wouldn't have communism without it. So so there you go. <laughs> You've really made me want to get something to drink. That's I think what I'm going to do next is. Yeah, no, this whole podcast is just a it's a backdoor advertisement for uh, for the beverage industry. We're we're sponsored by InBev, uh, so please only purchase uh, Budweiser brand or Heineken. I don't know what InBev sells. Uh, <laughs> can't believe it took you that uh, long maybe to catch on. I haven't spent as much time in diners, I guess, as I thought. <laughs> yeah, you got to go talk to those college kids some more and tell you all about how to detect uh, subliminal advertising. Um, anyway, <laughs> fun talk. Teddy Smith, great to talk to you. Thank yeah. you for joining the podcast. Yeah, I'm honored. And thank you for listening, and we will be back in two weeks. Ciao.